0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Weissman. I'm the editor here at Modern Retail, and I'm joined here with Dina Bari, the CMO of StockX. And I'm really excited today to learn more about the inner workings of the resale economy and also get... Maybe better acquainted with streetwear, which of course are clothes that are much cooler than I will ever be. Um, but Dina, why don't you just, for people who are jo- you know listening who might not know exactly what StockX is, why don't you just sort of get into how it works? Because it's a it's a slightly different model than you know most other resale uh, websites.
1: Hi, Kale, Yes, it is slightly different. You're right. So we are a live bid ask marketplace. So, what that means is that similar to the stock market, um, you know, there is an environment where a buyer says what they are willing to pay for an item and a seller says what they're willing to sell that item at. And only when there's a match between the bid and the ask does the sale happen. So, um, it's dynamic. It's live. The pricing is moving just like with the stock market. Uh, and it's um, very transparent and fair. So for people on both sides of the transaction, there's a ton of visibility around that pricing history and data. And another thing that's different is that uh, StockX stands in the middle of that transaction. So unlike other marketplaces where you as a buyer are buying directly from a seller and you have to decide if you are comfortable with the reviews and the, you know what you can find but you can glean about that seller... We are standing in the middle saying, we're going to make sure everything goes smoothly. Don't worry about who's on the other side. So we um, authenticate the product, which means that we ensure that everything you are buying is exactly what you think it is and hope it is, that it's real, that it's in the condition that you expect it to be in. um, And then we make sure that it comes to you quickly and painlessly. Um, And so that is our bid-ask marketplace. We sell sneakers. We sell streetwear, as you mentioned. We sell collectibles, trading cards, watches, handbags. And and really, it's designed for any object where there's more demand than there is supply.
0: So it started with sneakers, is that correct? It
1: started with sneakers, correct.
0: So- this is a question that I've always had and I've done I, I've never bought sneakers on Stockx, but I've always looked looked at them online and I've always been interested in the bid ask uh, dynamic. is that would that only work stockx with bid and ask with a kind of high demand object like sneakers like nicer streetwear or do you, do you think that that could work with sort of a- any sort of product online?
1: Well, we always say that it's designed for coveted products where there's more demand than there is supply. That being said, you know, not every item on the platform that's for sale today is a super hot, hype, highly coveted item. Right. It's really um, I mean, as a seller, you can put any item up um, that fits into our categories. Um, And it may not today be one that has a line of people waiting out the door. And one of the beautiful things about the platform is that you can just put a product page, you know, list a product and see if there's demand for it. Um, But really when the system is working at its best is it's when there's that um, hot demand and limited supply.
0: Absolutely. So you joined StockX uh, last September, is that correct? That's right. Uh, What would, what was sort of your mandate or your personal mission for when you joined the company?
1: Well, um, you know, we are—we're a young company. We're a four-year-old company, going on five years. um, And the company has been in hyper-growth mode, so just you know, incredible acceleration. And this is the first time that a role—a CMO role—was created. So really, the remit was put some structure and discipline around the way that we're growing, Um, and, and that meant a number of things. Like one meant really um, up leveling the way that we think about the performance side of marketing. So acquisition and retention of customers, marketing analytics, um, putting sort of the scaffolding in place so that as we grow, we can be efficient, we can be scalable and controlled. Uh, Another piece of the remit was really on the brand side, which is, um, you know, StockX enjoys a really strong brand, a lot of um, sort of magnetism and affinity with the customers. And um, there too, there's an opportunity to be more intentional and more strategic about what we're doing and how we're doing it. So it was really about you know, the company had been this incredible lightning in a bottle and all of this growth had been happening. Um, but now it's time to be more deliberate, be more planned and strategic about the things that we're doing, whether it's growth marketing or brand
0: marketing. Have you had to shift sort of how you've how you've marketed the brand, how you've packaged the brand specifically as you've expanded beyond sneakers.
1: We have. I think um, you know it's always easier to describe your value proposition, figure out who you, who your community is, who your tribe is as a brand when you have a simple offering, and I think it gets harder um, and more interesting when there's more to talk about and you have to sort of dimensionalize the story um, and and we, the brand of the business has been working on that over the past two years you know the category expansion has is not brand new we um started branching out several years ago i think um what is challenging and interesting is figuring out how to get a consumer to cross shop and to engage across all the, the multiple offerings that we have because that's sort of the holy grail in marketing right when mm-hmm. you can get a customer to cross shop and and re-engage across multiple categories um, and I think the other thing operationally that's quite interesting is just there the new categories have brought different demands. For example, with handbags, you know, in sneakers and apparel, everything is dead stock, which is, you know, brand new never worn, even if it's um, being resold. Whereas mm-hmm. on the handbag side, that hasn't always been the case. So that creates a whole new sort of set of challenges on the operation side. How do you authenticate a product that isn't dead stock, um, but that still meets a certain standard? Um, and so, certainly, as we go broader and and enter new categories, there's always additional complexity. But that makes it more fun.
0: So, what were the sort of marketing levers before you started? Like, you know, when you first joined, what did you shift? Where did you put more, you know, ad spend into? What? what how did the dynamics shift that you that you've been trying to grow for the last nine months?
1: Sure. So, uh, the the brand has a very strong um, rooting in content marketing, cultural marketing. Um, and that has been a part of the sort of discipline from the beginning, right? So writing great editorial, writing great social about the products um, and about the community, showing up at events that resonate with our customer things like All Star um, and various music festivals or art festivals where the customer is and, and is um, kind of experiencing and expressing their passion for our category. Um, and so that's where the company started. Um, SEO was another piece of mm-hmm. the- early on um, and some place where the team put a lot of emphasis even before the- we were spending money um, for acquisition and media. And then, you know, those pillars have remained. So we've continued to invest in content marketing, social media, um seo and then of course adding on to the layer cake with paid media and um you know the the story has changed quite a bit since i've come along because of this drive towards efficiency that i mentioned earlier so um actually in the past nine months we've pulled back quite a bit on our spend, somewhat because of you know the macro events somewhat because as we're building um a scalable infrastructure for paid marketing i wanted to be sure that we were um Playing it safe before we started spending um, at scale again. So, um, you know, we have experimented across many channels: linear TV, streaming, podcasts. Um, you know, of course, we have a sort of bread and butter mix online with um, Google Shopping, search, paid ads um, on Facebook and Instagram, etc. Um, and so, the biggest change I would say that in media spend since I've come along is just being more conservative while we build the infrastructure for analytics and um, data-driven decision-making.
0: Absolutely. Can you talk, so you're the bread and butter, I imagine, as you said earlier, for StockX has been content marketing. And a lot of that was event-based or at least just sort of Experiential based, uh, given given your products, how has that changed? People aren't going out. There there's not going to be a Coachella, for example, at least Mm -hmm. for for this year. What how how have you changed that sort of rationale and strategy involving content marketing, which I imagine is a huge driver for you guys?
1: Yeah. So this has been one of the biggest changes for our team in the past over the past six months. You know, we came out of the gates (laughs) and all of these great plans for content marketing and cultural marketing, which is really like brand activations, events, experiences, partnerships. And of course, you know, a few weeks into the year, everything um, took a hard shift. (laughs) And, um, you know, we just got creative about taking those initiatives online. And we've actually had a a great amount of success with those changes. I think, um, look, obviously we weren't the only ones who had to adapt to this new reality. And so our partners have been very... um, collaborative with us as we're trying to figure out how to, how to make those changes. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, you know, there's a young designer named Bruce Cooper who we sponsored last year. And part of that relationship was making a documentary about his, um, first shows at fashion week in New York and Paris. And we had a, a huge screening planned in LA to, to debut this film. And obviously we had to shift gears, So we made an a digital event and we got, um, several hundred thousand views and lots of PR coverage and lots of great engagement because even though it was, you know, very different than originally intended, it was a really engaging event online that everyone can participate. So suddenly an event that might have been exclusive, only accessible to people who are in a given city, um, that event is is open to everyone, no matter where they are in the country or in the world, um, you know, everyone can dial in from home. So That's one example of where we took something that was very (laughs) physical and it was planned, you know, to be in LA in a great boutique screening location. And suddenly we opened it up to everyone. um, Thanks to having to be online. Uh, We've also had some great charity campaigns around some of the events that have happened over the past few weeks and months, um, whether they be COVID related, whether they be um, black lives matter related. And I think there too, because of the fact that everybody's kind of home, going through everything together in a way, um, we were able to create an incredible amount of engagement around these charity campaigns um, and, and use our platform to help customer our customers get involved. So as an example, we did a great charity campaign with World Health Organization to raise money for COVID-19 relief. And we were able to uh, loop in a number of our influencers, kind of friends and family of StockX, to donate items from their closets to be raffled off. So we had folks like Eminem and Hussein bolts giving items from their from their closet to be raffled off on our platform, and we raised over three hundred thousand um, dollars for the World Health Organization. Um, so, you know, that's an example of creativity that came out of these strange circumstances that we found ourselves in.
0: Yeah. Especially with the first one, how is that going to inform the kind of programming you do down the line, even if things do somewhat return to normal? Like I imagine the scale and the metrics and what you consider to be engagement are completely different from one to the other. So how are you sort of going about a, like scaling these kinds of programs that are now digital only and not the same as sort of a very bespoke special one-off event. And, you know, how, how are you, how are you thinking about replicating that down the line?
1: Yes. I mean, I think if, if things return to normal, when things return to normal, (laughs) we'll end up with a hybrid sort of picking the best of both. Obviously to your point about bespoke, you know, these real life activations and experiences are special and are deep in a way that is hard to replace online. Um, And so and it's a big part of our brand, it's a big part of creators and the world in which we we work and live um, with fashion and sort of like you know creative products. So that is important and will always be important. But one of the issues with that kind of marketing activation is the limitation on scale, right? There's always the ROI question: how many people mm-hmm. can you touch? How many people can actually be exposed to your brand or engage with your brand in that deep way? And so if we're able to take the learnings from this time where we've converted these things online and been able to open up reach um, and yet can take the best of the in real life version and and really create those deeper experiences where there's more context, I think that will be ideal. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I can say that um, the team's task with this work have been incredibly excited to have to adapt and i'll use another example sports um and obviously in in sneakers you know sport is a huge passion point um you know we've partnered with many brands um you know the cleveland Cavs. i mentioned the all-star basketball game in february it's mm-hmm. a big part of our calendar and so one of the pivots we've had to make as those sports um have been on pause is, is um going online to e-gaming, which is mm. incredibly opportune if you think about what's going on with Gen Z today and how many people are gaming. Um, and so it's opened up a whole new world to us that we might have been um, perhaps slower to, to turn to. Um, and th- with that new world comes a lot of scale and reach. Um, and while you're not going to get to touch and feel the product the way you would at an all-star event, uh, you get to engage with us in a different way. So again best of both would be my
0: goal are, are those would you, are are there similar people you're reaching when you're doing normal sporting and e-gaming or was that just a completely new education about about who you're working with how you talk to them how you market to them etc
1: um it's pretty different it's pretty different I think some of it has to do with um, the physical constraints right an event add a Cleveland Cavs game or add an All-Star activation in Chicago you're sort of constrained by your geography mm-hmm. um also there's an exclusivity factor right there those events are usually you know tickets are expensive not every person can participate um so here with digital sports or e-gaming um you know some of those walls are lower those barriers are lower um and I think generally speaking, e-gaming has a younger, more Gen Z-like demographic. Um, and so that is a core consumer for us. So it's not a new audience for us, but we've been, you know, it's changed the way that we've been um, marketing sports specifically.
0: We're now going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Out of curiosity, a lot of the products you sell and specifically with the, the kind of event marketing you did, there there the entire point was the exclusivity or the sort of cachet of it being a very small insular sort of event or product and so how do you go about maintaining that that sort of that level of exclusivity for a much more for lack of a better word democratized online event if you're having hundreds of thousands of people participate does it still have the same impact that it did if it was you know at a Cleveland Cavaliers game or a small LA screening. how I feel like that there, that's two different tightropes that you're walking and how do you sort of go about dealing with that?
1: Yeah, you're right in that. Um, but I think the beauty is that access and, and democratization um, is actually a core pillar of our brand. So if you think about what taking these uh, transactions um, online onto a, a platform like StockX achieves, Um, It makes something that used to be very limited, very hard to participate in. You had to know the guy who runs the store that gets that product from directly from Nike or Jordan. Um, And now you don't have to have the hookup. You can just show up on StockX and place your bid and get a chance to participate in that product that was formerly, you know, exclusive, hard hard to touch. It's almost that same dynamic with um, some of our marketing marketing activation. So while once they were exclusive, if you didn't have the invite to the party or you know you didn't have the the budget to buy the tickets, um, you couldn't have participated. Now, when these things are, are online, uh, that barrier is removed. So very analogous to what we're doing with our platform um, and allowing people more access to product. And again, I think there's... You know, benefits to both. I think for us, reach is a big objective. Obviously, targeted reach because we're not just trying to blanket the universe. Um, mm-hmm. We want to reach people who care about what we have to say and sell. Um, however, it's always better for marketing ROI when you can take your investments a- and engage a, a, a m- more people. So, when you can take an idea around e gaming, around digital content, and um, you know, open the aperture to reach more people, it's often very positive.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that you, you know, at the beginning of the year, what with, you know, all the different things going on, you pulled back some of your spend or, you know, reallocated. What what were some of the things you pulled back on and w- what have you learned from that?
1: Well, during the height of the COVID-19 pause, <laughs> so in March <laughs> and April, when I think everybody was sort of uncertain how things were going to play out, Um, you know, the prevailing wisdom was pull back on anything that's not directly attributable to measurable growth and ROI positive growth, right? So if you were reading all the marketing literature out there, that's what was being advised. And we did do some of that, right? Some things like linear TV, um, where it is hard to quantify exactly the benefit you're getting in Mm -hmm. a short period of time. we also cut back, obviously, on the cultural and marketing side because these events simply ground to a halt. Right, mm-hmm. the experiences just couldn't be activated. Um, other than that, you know, most of our marketing dollars today, like the, the dollars, are allocated to ROI driving performance marketing channels, and so um, we were not. There were were a few channels that got the axe completely. Um, it was more so just you know, taking a more conservative posture. Um, again, we were, we spent Q1, Q2, really building a new whole new data and marketing analytics infrastructure. And so it's kind of a good time to pull back because, you know, fast forward six months, we have a new way of measuring every dollar that we spend. Um, and so we just kind of dialed the whole thing back. Um, what's incredible is that despite, despite the pullback, um, we've seen... An, an incredible return to, um, activity in the marketplace. So, you know, there was that initial pause where I think everyone was sort of frozen trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and then by mid April, we started to see an incredible return back, um, to normal and even better than normal shopping behaviors. So, um, that's reflected in pricing of products. It's reflected in traffic, um, and it's reflected in the pace of our business. So, um, you know, th- the more conservative stance on marketing spend has not had a negative impact on the business. Very fortunately,
0: were, were there any changes in in the items that people were buying? Was it still were sneakers still number one, for example? Or come April, was there a, sort of a difference in in how people were interacting with the marketplace?
1: Well, sneakers sneakers do dominate, so um, sneakers are pretty much always number one. <laughs> Um, I would say there are some trends that we've picked up on um, and some of them are very much influenced by the brands and the release schedule. Um, You know, so obviously the Last Dance, the Jordan and Bulls documentary series has had a huge impact on our industry. Mm -hmm. And um, with that came this slew of releases and re-releases of classic Jordan silhouettes. And um, those have been incredibly popular. And it also, I think, reflects a mind, consumer mindset that we're observing kind of at large, which is this sort of um, return to classics and like investment pieces. So some of the, just our trend partners that we work with and, and some of the things we've observed on our own indicate that people are more prone during a time like this to spend on things that are kind of investments, classics.
0: Interesting. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Items that will endure, right? Rather than the crazy splurge Piece that may be a passing fab.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
1: so that aligns really well with this kind of Jordan story, where there there's been a re-release of of really iconic silhouettes, um, and they've definitely been top on the top of the list at StockX over the past uh, months.
0: Did you guys do any pre-planning with the Jordan documentary? How did you, and did you work specifically with ESPN? Sort of like when there's going to be a cultural moment that is almost certainly going to have an impact on the marketplace specifically for athletic wear, for example, what do you do planning wise? How do you ride those coattails?
1: Yeah. No, so there are a number of ways, um, in which we can work with them or, you know, um, be opportunistic about an event like this, which really was, uh, a cultural event. And I think one of the things, you know, the timing was a surprise. So the, the original, um, broadcast timing for this was it was meant to be later in the year and ESPN and Jordan Brand pulled it forward. Um, I think it had to do with everything that was going on with sports at large Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, seeing a window of opportunity. So the way that we were able to benefit from that was certainly on the media side, you know, buying TV spots, um, that were you know so our, our spot would run during air, various mm-hmm. airs of the series, but also on the content side, you know we've done a lot of great um, pieces around you know for example top ten um, Jordans in the last in the Last Dance or show me every Jordan that was featured in the Last Dance. You know there's an incredible incredible amount of interest from the consumers on this and search activity, and so part of our content team's job is to say what are people going to be searching for and how do we make sure that StockX shows up. And that's part of the SEO activity. Um, the other part of their job is to make sure that we're they're being on the forefront of what's relevant, being culturally driven. And that's where um, you know we've been covering across social and the blog, just everything, all things of interest in that series. Um, ideally, something that we haven't done to date, but we'd like to do, is to really actually be on the front end of this process and partner with um, mm-hmm. you know some a creator who's making content. Um, of this nature, and and really be involved um, in the beginning and be woven through. Um, and again, we did not do that with the last dance. That would have been a dream come true, but <laughs> <laughs> we did not. But it's something that we think about as um, part of our future content strategy.
0: Absolutely. Can you let's talk a little about the the Google ecosystem because it's something I'm specifically fascinated with. Uh, I know that you guys you're very good with your SEO, but you've also do a lot with Google Shopping. How has how sort of the Google Shopping ecosystem shifted? It seems like they're trying to take a little bit more of a hands on approach with the commerce process. What have you noticed? Are you like how when you work with Google specifically, wh- how does that fit into your overall marketing plan as a digital marketer for for your own website?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting about our category is it's very query driven. Um, So people are often, and especially in the early days of the business, um, people are looking for a specific shoe. They're not just going to show up and be like, huh, what's on StockX today, right? It's very much like I'm on the hunt for this thing that I want. Um, And so that means that, Google and search in general plays a really important piece in the mix, um, because when someone's going to type in, um, you know, Jordan Eleven, um, we want to be number one, two, three, four, five, all the way, you know, mm-hmm. dominate the whole page, um, yeah. in the search engine results, and so that requires a mix of um, of strategy around organic and paid. Now, shopping has been a hugely successful channel for us. It is. Um, kind of the, the best Google product for that kind of behavior, paid product for that kind of query driven behavior I just mentioned. But the landscape is changing um, because of this new rollout that Google has announced of the um, non-paid placements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think as with all ad platforms, you have to stay on your toes because the products are, you know, the platforms are evolving their products and what works for you today is not guaranteed to be working for you down the road. Um, and so what we do is, you know, we work really closely with our Google account team, um, and we're very transparent with them and we ask them a lot of questions and they're very transparent with us. Um, and we we know that we can't get complacent. So part of this, um, shift and spend strategy this year has been to make sure that we're not vulnerable and not overly reliant on any single channel, whether that be Google shopping or something else. Um, you know, I think we don't quite fully understand how the non-paid placements are, are going to change things, but we know we're getting more free traffic from Google as a result of them. So um, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, it's just another reason to be equally focused on um, the organic side as as you are on the paid side from a brand point of view, because, um, you know, I think this new strategy from Google is going to favor brands that have organic strength.
0: Absolutely. Do you, I mean, as soon as they started putting in the, these new products, how did you, what did you shift? Was it just focusing more on the organic? And would you say that before you were overly reliant or predominantly reliant on Google sort of? And how have you how have you diversified that? Where have you where have you been focusing more on Instagram? Like, how have you been sort of going against those tides?
1: Well, again, um, we haven't made any radical, radical shifts, except for to be more conservative today than we were maybe a year ago on the spend side. Um, I think, honestly, the biggest change that we've made is based on our new analytics framework. We understand better what's mm-hmm. actually going on. So, you know, a year ago we might have said, okay, Google's driving like X percent of our conversions or our traffic. Today, based on um, you know, data infrastructure and analytics, we now understand that Google might be touching a large number of our conversions, but it's not responsible for that same number of our conversions um, because the journey of a user is complex and is influenced by many channels, including Organic and own channels, Um, and so the biggest thing that has done it's freed us because when you don't have that that complete view of the of the journey, you're just taking sort of last click attribution at its word. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas once you understand the journey, you can see okay, paid is critically important, yes, but so is email or push, so is organic, Um, and it frees you from thinking that just spending more paid dollars will solve all your problems.
0: You know, you mentioned. You know, at the beginning of this interview, that when you joined, StockX was in hyper growth, and now there've been a lot of shifts, both uh, like in the world and just like what's going on internally. How how are you approaching this growth now, as compared to where you were come September when you joined? Is it you know are are you guys still in hyper growth, or are you being much more deliberate about where you're putting your money specifically, or how and like yeah, sort of how are you approaching that overall mindset?
1: Yeah, so philosophically. Um, as we came into the planning period for 2020, so in in Q3 Q4 last year, we you know made it we wrote it down we said it out loud, which is like we're going moving away from growth at all costs, and we're moving towards deliberate, scalable, efficient growth. Um, and, and so we had every intention of slowing things down to be more deliberate um, and careful. Um, you know the events of this year. Have surprised us, and, and we have experienced a lot of success this year—more success than we anticipated. And so we're still growing very fast. Um, but the good news is that we have that discipline of the scalable, efficient philosophical point of view. Um, and so while we are growing fast, we're not um, footloose and fancy free about it. You know, we're, we're being careful. We're being very focused on ROI. Um, And making sure that we are kind of building a a foundation that will help us achieve all of our aspirations. So we're sort of um, straddling, I would say, you know, it's still a lot of growth, but also the discipline that comes with a more mature company.
0: I know that you guys a few months ago uh, recently had layoffs. Was that just as because it was too sort of out in all directions and that and this that was sort of a natural sort of honing in? or is that sort of as a result of the you know, coronavirus and all the different things that are going on?
1: Yeah. it was really it was part of ensuring that we're being responsible and efficient as we grow. Um, I think there were just some areas of the business where we had, overinvested. invested. Um, and it was just about, you know, now with a new leadership team and a new philosophy around growth, um, making sure that we're sort of right, the right shape. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that I think even without COVID-19, um, we would have made some of those decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. What are, you know, now, cities are slowly reopening, things are a bit changing. How are you approaching your planning for the next few months specifically? I imagine that it's been very hard to forecast for the, you know, since March. So what are you, what are you doing now on that front? And how are you doing long-term planning? Are you even, are, are events even in your thought process right now, or are you just going to wait for 2021? Sort of how are you going about that?
1: Yeah, we're, as you know events are a, a piece of what we're planning so overall we are planning for the future we're we're um, actually just wrapping up our back half kind of okrs calendar planning we're looking ahead to 2021 kind of and beyond starting to get a point of view on on what the future looks like a little bit farther out um as it relates to events obviously we're more of a watch and wait mode because it's not all in our control i think Safe to say that this year um, there will not be much going on, um, and we certainly hope that things will return to normal sooner than later. Um, I know, like some of our partners in the sports world, for example, are planning for a return to their seasons, um, you know, in the fall, and we really hope that that happens. But we're taking a, again a conservative stance on spend um, in those types of areas so that we're not exposed. Um, you know, I think we also have, you know, new growth areas, new markets um, where we have been very excited to support those country launches, those market launches with experiences, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we're just watching to make sure that um, we're not doing anything that's unsafe um, or premature, um, and and we're gonna have to play it by ear on the event side. But again, on the content side, on the sort of um, partnerships, cultural marketing side, we are planning. To continue the shift to digital, the shift to community online, because we've had so much success with that to date. So those areas of the planning process are not on hold. It's really just the piece about in real life activation.
0: hmm I'd, so I, I'm interested just to know when you when you do expand to new categories how you go about it. Uh, I know that our, our, one of Martin Retail's sister publications, Glossy, wrote a story about how uh, you've you've recently focused more on face masks and puzzles, which you know you wouldn't necessarily expect for a company that launched with sneakers at the core. When you're looking at these new categories, how do you how do you think about them? And also, do they have a rever- reverberation of I don't know, not necessarily resonating with the other products that are available on the, on the site?
1: Well, there's always, you know, there's new categories and then there's new, new products, right? So things like face masks and puzzles are not new categories. They're new products that fit into, um, in the case of face masks, it's within, um, streetwear in the case of the puzzles, it's within collectibles. Mm -hmm. I think the story is always like, you know, make sure there's an adjacency and sort of a natural connection to the categories that we currently have. Um, and we very much have a sort of test and learn mindset. And so sometimes we're like, let's just see what happens. Let's put up, you know, a Nintendo Switch is the most recent example. It doesn't, it's not a new category. We're not now launching it like kind mm-hmm. of trying to see, you know, look, this is a product where there's limited supply and lots of demand. Let's put it on the platform and see what happens. Um, The puzzles really were an artist, Um, you know, cause is one of our like leading artists and collectibles launched a new product. And we said, Hey, it's a perfect fit. We know our customers love him and everything he does. So let's put him on the platform. Mm-hmm. You know, is there, it, it's not that we're necessarily planting a flag and saying we're now moving in <laughs> Games, you know, it, it's yeah. want to leave an, in not just in the merchandising, but in every area of the business, a, enough margin to try things and not make it like it's a brand new strategy. It, it can just be a test, um, and so that's what we're doing with electronics today. Um, as it relates to, I think you asked about tension. Is there tension um, or kind of a lack of resonance with other? Mm -hmm. products. Um, I mean, that's why we try things, right? Because you you never know. I think there's going to be that customer who's just an avid, voracious consumer across lots of categories. And so we want to make sure that we always have new stuff for that person. Um, And then there's the query-driven person that I mentioned earlier, right? That person who's in their Google search bar going Nintendo Switch. And if they land on our page instead of Best Buy, where it's going to be sold out, you know, that's a win. Um, And so you know, not everything's going to be a home run. Um, That is part of our sort of startup DNA where we try, we fail, we learn. Um, And that's always going to be a part of how we do things. Um, But it's our job to innovate and to keep the customer interested and and, um, to keep putting relevant things in front of the customer. So we're going to keep trying.
0: All right, Dina, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great way to start the week.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Biename, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.